All right. So we have been working through uh, the books of First and Second Corinthians now for uh, goodness, probably four different sessions that we've been in here. Um, because, well, to be perfectly honest, the references to the Holy Spirit in First Corinthians are numerous. And the amount of things he's involved with in the life of the church are on full display, uh, especially in a book like First Corinthians, where you see the Spirit of God being misused for the first time uh, in the church's history, uh, at least as far as we are aware. And so there's a lot of correctives, there's a lot of clarifications, and then there's a lot more questions that get raised, uh, such as what this type of um, what this type of gift is, what that type of gift is. We didn't seek to answer all of those questions. We did, however, seek to understand that the background of all of this is that there is one spirit doing all of these things to the church. So there should not actually be spiritual gifts that collide with one another. It's not like the world that the Greeks came out of that the people in Corinth would be very familiar with, which is the expectation is when the gods do things, uh, that's where conflict amongst humans arises. Right? You have one God that's intending this in a, in, a, in a polytheistic world. You have another God that's intending this, and that's where chaotic interactions come from. What, what Paul is writing to them is continuing to clarify, there is only one God, and so what conflicts arise are owed to us, not to God. And so it's, it's one of those places where we, we clarify uh, who we are as far as, uh, as, as saints, we still have tendencies to misuse our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with other Christians. You ever been sinned against by another Christian? Ever happened? If it hasn't happened today, (laughs) it happens. It doesn't reflect upon God, that reflects upon us. And that is what 1 Corinthians really lay a lot of groundwork to understand. Um, and so he, he explains in multiple cases, there is one God, there is one Father, one Spirit, and just uh, all of these things coming from a singular source. And so the conflict that was arising in, in the church in Corinth uh, before the writing of 1 Corinthians had much to do with the leadership and the people there um, creating chaotic disorder uh, and even uh, wronging one another in pretty severe ways. Um, in 2 Corinthians, we have a completely different tone. 1 Corinthians is written almost with tears and anger and frustration from the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians is a much more docile tone. A lot of the things that have happened were fixed. In fact, there was multiple letters from Paul. Uh, Some think up to four. There was at least three uh, to this church trying to fix and work on these issues. Even when Paul had founded this church, we talked about uh, the reality is he actually stayed there in that church longer than any other church at its founding. It was 18 months he stayed with them, uh, week in and week out. But by way of contrast, the church in Thessalonica, three weeks. So it should show you kind of the, the distance that had to be traveled by the culture in Corinth to move from what they were used to to what actual Christianity is. And... Um, and all the struggles along the way, and they were still dealing with issues along the way. Any points of clarification before we even get started? Let's do it. 2 Corinthians 4, we will pick up, oh, we'll pick up a little bit where we left off. Verse 7. Speaking of the gospel and the ministry that is given to us, we have this treasure in jars of clay. You heard the phrasing before. Uh, we have this, this marvelous thing, but 
the real issue with clarity doesn't come that the treasure itself is not wonderful or grand or high or great. Uh, it is that it is in these earthen vessels, it is in these uh, bodies that we carry around these things, these jars of clay. Why is it, do you suppose, that the weaknesses of that, that show up in the church, you can leave it open, it's not distracting to me, I know he's listening. Yeah, he's trying to, <laughs> no worries. Um, I didn't turn on the, uh, the mics for the uh, hallway uh, sound, so we're good. We should be okay. Where was I? <laughs> no worries. Oh, yes. Um, why is it God leaves us in this state where we have to wrestle in the midst of our difficulties, Right? There is not perfect fellowship in the church. There never is. There never will be on this side of heaven. Why is that? It does strengthen us. That's one of the side effects. Absolutely. It also tells us what to trust in. Absolutely. And all of these things serve one huge purpose, and it's expressed in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay for one huge purpose. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If, if what is being done in the church is by our cunning or our conniving or our planning or our hands, and that's it, and the workmanship of the church belongs to us, it's just jars of clay moving around with no actual treasure in it. The whole point of still maintaining this reality where in the church we have to work with one another's weaknesses, bear one another's burdens, and suffer even sometimes at the hands of one another. In the midst of all this, God says, I'm doing this to show that the surpassing power does not belong to us to be able to fix all this. The surpassing power belongs to God. And just like it is for the very base of why we exist at all, it is for the glory of God. It is not so that we can live the best life that we can, it is not so that we can make things about us or glorify ourselves at the expense of uh, whatever else is going on. It is this, this pull, this constant pull to the glory of God that we are interacting with, even in the midst of one another. So if you have a Christian, for instance, that is in fellowship with you, that truly serves the Lord, but does so in a different manner than you, what can bring you two together? What if you're from different cultures? What if your two cultures are at war with one another? Right. There is a, um, one of my daughters is friends with a girl who goes to a church in Binghamton that is a Ukrainian-Russian Orthodox church. Right? What, what issues do you think are going on personally between certain family members and everything else going on in that church? All right? Correct. But if we do not have Christ over all that, then all we will ever do is take sides. And it will bring about church splits. Church splits do not come from God. They come from us. And that is a, that is a remnant of our jars of clay interacting. And so we do not put that reflection upon God as if somehow God wasn't clear about who he is and what he is doing. There is one spirit. There is one source of all these. There is one glory of all of this. But we are still in jars of clay. So that people do not continually mistaken the hope of the church with what we are able to do. And there are churches aplenty who will try to sell you on that. Many. 
We'll try to say, this is going wrong in your life, that's going wrong in your life, here's some bad habits in your life, come to us, we'll help you fix it. We'll, we'll help your addictions, we'll help your marriages, we'll help your life, we'll make you happy, uh, we'll teach you financial, pro we'll, everything, and, and your life will do well. But the church's job is not to polish jars of clay. The church's job is to focus on the treasure inside. That promise given to us by the Spirit of God. This is one of the main roles of the Spirit of God in the church. To continually focus these jars of clay, I'll just use his terminology, on the treasure of Christ given to us. Otherwise, we become infatuated with ourselves and what our hands can do. I was in Rome two weeks ago, and uh, one of the massive things that stood out to me was the difference in how we build church buildings, right? This is, this is fine, handy work here, but it, it looks like a school. It looks like... When, when you're in Italy and you walk into a church, there's no question what you're walking into. You are walking into a church. It is made for miracles. It is made for transubstantiation. It is made for reflection. It is made to literally, almost as, ref, uh, as a reflex, lift your head up high. I, I was in one, I don't know if you guys remember this one, that had a rotunda so high that it actually had small clouds in it. Like, that kind of thing is so odd to us. We don't think like that, we don't address like that, but part of it, I'm glad for one part that we don't do that. Because it's enormously distracting to how hopeless jars of clay are without the treasure inside. We could build the most fantastic church buildings and have nothing of the gospel, and then what are we? We're just empty jars of clay rather than jars of clay with a tremendous treasure, as is given to us. It is the Spirit of God who continually challenges this. By the way, where we went to church when we were there um, held none of that. It was very much like this, just a small... Uh, building in a plaza somewhere that was just a little sign above it, uh, the Rome Baptist Church. It was just remarkable to me how clear people in that culture that pay attention to the gospel as a, as a uh, way of life don't see buildings as the most important thing going on. Anyway, it was just an interesting thing that I got to learn recently. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Here he's talking about all the different ways that, these, uh, that this life uh, continually comes against us, but where does it stop? The affliction cannot actually fully crush us. The, um, uh, the perplexion that we experience in this world does not drive us to despair, because while it can threaten despair to us, and sorrow can threaten to undo us, it does not fully take over. We are persecuted, but we know we're not forsaken. There it, it, it focuses more on the, the act of God. We are struck down, but we are not fully destroyed. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10, by the way, if you're just coming in. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That is one of the capstone teachings of this chapter. There are often times when the church passes through uh, times of ease, or times of comfort, or may I say times of success, or even in a culture that likes it. When it no longer experiences those things, 
Christians tend to start questioning whether or not God is for them at all. Because what happens when times of ease and comfort come along the church's way is the same teachings always crop up again. If you follow Christ, everything will go well with your life. If you follow Christ, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. The dog will be happy. Your wife will be happy. Your, your stocks will go up. Everything will go fine. Well, if you live in a culture where that happens anyway, when the stuff crashes down for a Christian, what will happen to their faith? If they've based it on the outcome of things in how well we polish jars of clay rather than on the treasure inside, what happens? Despair. I have seen it more times than I can count. Of people that are in pulpits, of people that are in pews, it doesn't matter. It hits us all. Because if we are focused on just what our hands do, then when the things that our hands do fail, because they certainly will, at one point or another, you just extend the clock long enough, despair takes over. Why does he say we are doing this? Why, why are we afflicted and crushed and perplexed, or not crushed, afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down? Why? Why are we always caring about the body, in the body, the death of Jesus? It is, again, he gives us the reason, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. It is... It is tearing away from us these things that would rather our fealty other than Christ. It is not a hard thing when times are easy to teach, follow me and all will go well with your life. It's where the prosperity preachers come from with their false gospel. It's where the health and wealth preachers come from. If you believe in God enough, you will be healthy. That is not true. If you believe in God enough, give me some seed money. All will be well. No, you're listening to a charlatan. This is not the promise of God here. The reality is that sometimes grave difficulty comes, and it has purpose. And it shows us that the life of Christ is continually being manifested in these jars of clay. We who live, what does he say? Verse 11, we who live are always given over to the death uh, to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Again, he says it in a whole other way. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Here's where the Spirit comes in. If so much death surrounds us, and so much difficulty, and yes, make no mistake about it, suffering is the stuff of death. Suffering was not supposed to be our relationship with this creation. Right? It is why when Genesis 3 finishes off, notice the only thing cursed there is the ground. The, human, the man and the woman were not cursed. A lot of people think they were. They weren't. Go back and read it again. Only the ground is cursed. We get the effects of a cursed ground. Our brow will sweat, and the blood of our hands, and the difficulty of tilling the earth. Now it won't just bring forth automatically. You have to work. It's going to be difficult, but it's going to have purpose. It's going to continually remind you of the God who gave you these things to begin with and you flaunted it. It wasn't a curse to us. It was a curse of the ground. It's to constantly remind us of the reality of where life comes from to begin with. Life does not originate with us. If life originated with us, we would be right to despair because we can't hold back suffering or death. Can we? Only for a time, right? Even with all of our medical advances, for a time. That's the best that we can do, just for a bit. 
Extend the clock long enough and you'll see the failure of mankind in every single sphere. The failure of empires and kings, the failure of borders and constitutions, the failures of virtue, the failures of promise. We all end up the same place if you extend the clock long enough. So where does life come from then? Because if it's all after our own hands and our own work, one, the church is worthless and pointless. And two, life is not actually a part of the, con- uh, a part of the equation at all. But Paul makes clear to them, he says, look, while death is at work in us, life is in you. Life is still a part of all of this. How? Verse 13. Here's where the Spirit of God comes in. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written. By the way, that is lowercase s on purpose. Um, A lot of people argue that that verse is talking about a generalized spirit of faith. I would be half and half on that. Uh, It's an interpretive question. The application is still the same, and so is the teaching. Um, Here's what he says. How is it that we actually attach ourselves to this? So we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. Uh, And here he quotes the psalmist, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Again, where's the focus? Always God. Anytime, and and this is a great litmus test, and I always remind Christians of this everywhere I go, um, because if there's nothing else that I've learned going through seminary, it's that you will run into brand new teachings all the time in the church. People like to think that creating new concepts is good for some reason. Uh, And every time I hear a new theological talk or a, a new perspective on something, whatever. I always ask one question. It's my main litmus test for all theology. You know what it is? Who's the focus or where does the glory go? It will wipe out 90% of false teaching like that. Some of it's a little bit more hidden, but the vast majority of false teaching is only one step removed of giving glory to man. That's it. That's it. But giving glory to God is always the focus of good theology. Always. It's the, it's the reason why we live. It's why he is saving us. It's why he is doing these things in this world. And he will not fail in carrying out the glory of God. And part of his glory is saving his people from their sins. Which means if you become despondent, maybe, maybe God had once saved me and then he's given up on me. God does not give up on his glory. It doesn't happen. It's not just because the promise is there. It's because it's very endemic to the nature of God to save his people. And so the idea of being his people and then not being his people because of something your hands have done or not done is ludicrous. The whole point is that God is glorifying himself in these bodies of death. He remembers we're made of dust. The psalmist says it plainly. Why don't we? So he says this. So, here's the outcome. Verse 16. 
we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, that would be the jars of clay, that dust part of us, that continually failing side of us, that sinful nature. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. There's something else going on. This is what I constantly refer to as the war within every Christian. There's always a struggle back and forth, isn't there? If the struggle is gone, you've lost the war, okay? You've lost perspective, something's off. There's always a wrestle with sin and with death. Because as those who have inherited life, death is trying to gain its control back again. And make no mistake, you're not by nature, uh, as you were born, a child of light. You understood death and gave full hearty approval of it until Christ shined into your heart. Now you have two sides going to war constantly. And so what he says here is he's, in the midst of all this, we don't lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away. We understand it's heading towards death. We know this, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so he says he expresses to all of this suffering that comes in a body of death that is constantly swirling about in the midst of a culture that is constantly about death. What does he call it in verse 17 by comparison? All of our sufferings, all of the difficulties, everything in our life, what does he call it in verse 17? Light momentary afflictions. There's the clock again. It's just for a time. And by comparison, it's light. It doesn't weigh hardly anything. It's like dust on the scales by comparing it to the promises that belong to us. This is why the church must always, always, always be focused on the promises of God that are on the other side of the scales especially when we suffer. Otherwise, we'll be about picking the dust off the scales and sitting there and trying to make these jars of clay just right and fix our life and just so, so that everything works out just right. No, look at the other side of the scale. Far outweighing our light momentary affliction, what does he say at the end of verse 17? What is it preparing us for? It's preparing us for the other side of the scales. The eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The other side of this, the other side of the scale, makes the dust on the scales incomprehensible. Remarkable estimate in how the Spirit of God works in us who cannot fully see this. He says, of course you can't see it. Of course it's not your perspective. Verse 18, we are to look not to the things that are seen, That's the dust on the scales, our failures, our difficulties, the jars of clay, the stuff that's wasting away, the transience of life. But we're to look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Perhaps one of the best passages to go to when you are threatened with despair. And all of this is being connected to the Spirit of God. We have to take this ramp up to this. For we know that if the tent, and here he actually talks about our bodies as tabernacles. Remarkable. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home, our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God. You ever stayed in a tent when you are camping? How close do you feel to nature compared to being in your home? Little too close. 
I saw a video once of somebody woke up and a, a lion was licking the dew from the side of their tent. A little too close for comfort. I'm never camping in Africa. <laughs> That's how close you feel to it. Almost exposed, right? And he uses that terminology. Now, if you don't know this, Paul was not a full-time apostle. He also had a job. What was his job? Anyone know? Almost. Tent maker. Makes sense. It's what he does. And so he takes a picture from what he's doing every day in between writing things and in between supporting things. He's out building tents, literally just sewing them together and selling them. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home, our bodies are destroyed, we have a building from God. And I love how he actually ties this in because he takes the very work that his hands do day in and day out and he likens it to the stuff of dust. How many times do we try to define ourselves by what we do day in and day out? As if it's our identity. It's not. He actually takes that, he sets it up as the chief example of something that's passing away and then throws it away. And he compares it with something that's far better. Buildings. It is a house, but not made with hands. It's not something that we have done. It's eternal and it's in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. It's kind of like when I camp. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. Now here is a really important aspect. And it's something that challenges our culture and our churches today because we constantly talk about the goal of the Christian is to just go to heaven and be out of this suffering body. He tells us it's not that. Not that we would be unclothed. There's nothing wrong with living in bodies. Death rips the soul from the body in a very unnatural way. But even God says, that's not going to ruin my promise or my purpose. This is why resurrection is actually the plan at the end. Because it's not that we would be unclothed, that we would just rid ourselves of the body in these jars of clay and so that we would live in the astral plane forever, floating amongst the clouds. No. No. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. When Jesus was risen from the dead, was he just a spirit or an apparition or a ghost? Some of the disciples were theorizing this, weren't they? It's kind of always the wonder, how, how, how does one rise from the dead? Are you just appearing as a man or something like this? No. He says, spirits don't have flesh and bones like you see I have. There's nothing wrong with having a body. In fact, there's everything intentionally created about that. Everything. And so Jesus portrays it to them. Look, you can see the wounds are still here. You can see I'm still a body. Now, his body had different rules. My body can't pass through locked doors without destroying the door. His can. How does that work? I don't know. His body can also eat fish and it doesn't just drop to the ground too. He's not just a spirit. There's something, a very different quality about it. It's not that we would be less clothed. It's that we would be further clothed. That's what we're actually aiming at. Where life is the only thing at work in our bodies rather than these bodies of death. Which means that the hope of the resurrection is not that we would just rise from the dead to walk just like this again, a body that's given to sickness and disease and problems and inevitable death. No, that we would be risen to walk in a brand new type of life 
at the end of the age so that we would have a body that does not break down or get sick or die. We would be further clothed, he says, so that what is mortal, what is aiming towards death, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Not you, not your pastor, not anybody else. This is God's workmanship to pull this off because nobody else can do it. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, and then he wraps it up with this remarkable statement, God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I have said this often, uh, usually when I'm teaching in the book of Ephesians, because he makes the point explicit there. But here he introduces it. If you want to know what living with God is like, pay attention to the Spirit of God. If you want to know what life in the abode of God, known as heaven, is like, look to what the Spirit of God is doing. He brings Christians together of different backgrounds and knits their hearts together in ways that humans can't do. Humans try. We try to create pluralistic societies, but what happens? We just end up fighting. In the church, it shouldn't be so. There should be one unifying principle, and that is Christ through the Spirit of God. If it is anything else or anyone else or any other goal, it's an unworthy church. Why? Because the guarantee that's given to us is God himself, the Holy Spirit. It is, it is not our, our unified purpose. It is not any of these other things. It is simply and totally God. He has given us this ministry of reconciliation for a reason, not so that we can glorify ourselves, but so that the glory always goes to God. And this is why we always challenge ourselves with these things. This ministry of reconciliation was necessary. God is not going to just simply look at humanity and say, oh, sin is fine. I'm okay with sin. Uh, sin just, you know, it. who cares that it destroys stuff? I'll just save people despite it. No, he's going to actually deal with sin. God would be an absolutely horrible manager if all he did was forgive sin. He needs to rid us of it. Isn't that the very promise of the Lamb of God? Behold what? The Lamb of God. What does John the Baptist say about him? He's going to take away the sin of the world. Everything. Sin will be gone. Either in graciously transferring the judgment of sin to him, or by giving the judgment of sin to those who refuse to trust in him. Either way, sin will be gone. This mortal, he says, I told you I'd have to discuss 1 Corinthians 15 at some point. This mortal must put on immortality. We cannot just take these bodies that continually in our members sin and just walk straight into heaven and walk into the new heavens and new earth. We would perish immediately because what is of death is being swallowed up by life. And so we actually pass through death at this era of history. Now, we also know there's a unique thing that happens at the end of the age when when God raises everyone from the dead and there's Christians alive. They'll be changed. First Thessalonians 4 talks about that. Fascinating stuff. They, they move straight from death to life. How that works, I don't know. We have exactly one verse that describes it and it's a little bit enigmatic. 
But the reality is that it is not us who do that. It is not us putting it on our calendar, making sure it happens. It's n- this is the work of God. And it's the Spirit of God who has given to us as a guarantee of all of these things. And he expresses this to us in the very next chapter. Look at chapter 6 here. After he talks about this ministry of reconciliation that is bringing together heaven and earth, because that's the ultimate plan of God, isn't it? It's not just the saving of his people and the destruction of his earth. I kind of grew up with that concept in my mind. For some reason, I only paid attention to certain things I was taught. And I always looked at it like this. Well, uh, the earth will just be wiped away. We'll all be in heaven, whatever that's like. And, you know, we'll be kind of like angels or something. And that was like the extent of my expectation. And then I started reading the Bible and it continually reminded me of this reality that it's not just the new heavens, it's the new heavens and new earth. And it's not just going to heaven when we die, we will be resurrected with actual purpose to live in bodies. Oh, and it's also Jesus is not an apparition after the resurrection, but still bears in his body, physically, glorified, but physically, the marks of his saving work. And so in the middle of all of this, he says to them in verse, uh, verse, end of verse 2. I'll just start at the beginning of verse 2. Oh, for crying out loud, just start at the beginning of chapter 1. Oh, chapter 6, not chapter 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Again, it's the work of God, not the work of us. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We will put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. What is he going to say? If we fail to teach this, there's actually some blood on our hands. That's some brutal language for anyone who's going to uh, maintain a teaching role in in, um, in the midst of the people of God. We are held to a higher standard. It is something that is a constant pressure and a uh, difficulty not to think of it as the work of our hands and yet to still never fail in doing it. It's a difficult thing. And I say that to anyone who teaches, and that includes parents to your kids. What does he say? We put no obstacle in anyone's way. This ministry of reconciliation so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Verse 4, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Doesn't matter what we have to pass through. We have one ministry to accomplish. The ministry of reconciliation. The glorification of God through the salvation of his people. Right? What does that mean for those who faithfully follow this? Well, if you listen to our culture and the current popular stuff going around the church, it'll mean happiness. It'll mean... Uh, churches that grow without end, multi-site campuses, multimedia presentations on every screen, large screens, thousands of people, and everyone's happy. What does he say? As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, Labors, sleepless nights, hunger. But it's not just all that. He continues this list. Purity, knowledge, patience, 
kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power, not of man, but of God. The weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. It is not the works of our hands. And if we see God doing something, we do not take credit for it. Have you noticed any changes that God has worked in your life? Be thankful. There is an encouragement in that and there is a warning in that. God does not share his glory with another. It doesn't work that way. God will be glorified and we will be thankful. What about that list sounds like our culture in any way whatsoever? Now look at the first parts of that list. Hi, let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me tell you what your life might actually look like if you follow him. Listen to this list. You're going to have great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. But it'll have a great side effect. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love and truthful speech. You want to sign up? No jar of clay in their right mind would sign up for that. I have enough sufferings in this world. Why would I invite more? Because it's the path of life. Could it be, perhaps, that we have tried to soft-sell the gospel by telling people how wonderful their life will be if they follow Christ? Rather than telling them exactly what Christ says, if anyone desires to follow after me, first step, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. Let's go up to that hill. Does that sell very well? No. No, it doesn't. But to those whom God is calling, it preaches faith into the heart. And that's not the work of our hands. It's not the work of our mouths. Christian, you can't save somebody by trying to convince them. You can only present the gospel. I had somebody, actually a couple, uh, attend a church I was a pastor in for eight years. They were not Christians. They told me outright, we're not. We just want to come to church every Sunday. Do you have any idea how harsh a lesson I had to learn in that it doesn't matter what I say, I cannot convince somebody to become a Christian. I tried to clarify the gospel a thousand ways. Walked through Romans. Clarify what faith is, what real hope is, what life is, to no effect. Year after year, they didn't miss a single Sunday except for when they're on vacation. Sunday after Sunday, and it humbled me so far, I can't even imagine. Why, why, why did they say they were doing this? Did they ever give you a reason why we were coming to church? Because that's what they thought they should do. <clears throat> that was the extent of it. And it wasn't even for salvation. They thought themselves beyond it. I tried to clarify it every way possible. And he was outspoken about it. He said, no, I, I understand. I, I can't be a Christian. He doesn't view himself as uh, applicable for it or possible. And yes, I tried to clarify that too. There's, there was... Where did they come from? Someplace 
helps to go to the church? I mean, if he says we're coming here for a reason, that would be a reason. He's coming from somewhere. Mm -hmm. He's coming from an idea that he lost his salvation and he can't get it back. I had to clarify Hebrews 10 to him a million times too. It, it, it would not land in any way, no matter what I tried. And it, it was an enormously humbling experience. Um, and it's just, it's one of these things that um, continually reminds me that, uh, thankfully, uh, it's not up to me to save people. Don't put that pressure on yourself when you are evangelizing people. Just be faithful. By the way, the same thing for the life of the church. It's not up to you and, and me and our uh, conniving ways to do stuff. It, this is not up to us. If it is, it's just a work of hands that passes away on the scales. Let's, and, and it will always happen, no matter, you just move the clock forward. It all happens like that. But the only stuff that lasts is the stuff of eternity by very nature. And so what do we do? We thank God for what he is doing despite these jars of clay in giving us such remarkable treasures. The Holy Spirit being one of the chief aspects of what we'll see going on in our life should we endure our sufferings well. And when I say you're enduring our sufferings well, I don't mean just going, we'll get through it and this is a terrible day but tomorrow might be better. Okay. And I hear Christians say this all the time. They will, they will rip Romans 8.28 directly out of context, kicking and screaming, and apply it to everything. All things work together for the good. And, and think that that is encouraging to people in the midst of their suffering. In context, that is not talking about, don't worry, Christian, if your stocks go down, they'll go up again. Or if somebody died, I, I guess you'll, you know, time heals it or something. God working all things together for good in that context of Romans 8, which we will spend a long time with because Romans 8 is all about the Spirit of God and what he's doing in the world. It's about the salvation of the people of God. Regardless of what comes our way, the ultimate good is not questioned. The ultimate good is the salvation of his people. And so when we pass through grave sufferings and difficulties, losses and whatever the case may be, just this list, Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, and hungers. When we pass through these things, passing through them does not call into question God's promises. He has not promised for us to avoid hardships and afflictions and calamities and beatings and imprisonments and riots and labors and sleepless nights and hunger. He has promised us life with him. And the effect of that promise is the second half of this list. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness. You see how it sounds a lot like the fruits of the Spirit? It's almost like the same guy is writing this and the same God is promising the same things. The Holy Spirit, genuine love. And as I always point out, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of self-exertion. Truthful speech and the power of God. Whether it's through honor and dishonor, this is verse 8, through slander and praise. Whether somebody's showing us honor or showing us dishonor. Happens all the time. Whether it's somebody slandering us or praising us. Don't believe, don't believe the, uh, what is it, press. 
I have usually found out that in the life of the church, if somebody is overly praising you, that person will be overly slandering you if you just move the clock forward a bit. Don't base your solidity in the life of the church. Base your solidity in God and live in the life of the church out of that. The difficulty amongst people often shows up when we get close to one another. And this is what he's expressing here is this reality is whether it's in the world or even if it's in the church. Now, again, the church in Corinth was dealing with massive issues. Uh, and he's, he's expressing to those who are in the church, you possess the spirit of God. Whether it's in honor or in dishonor in your experiences is irrelevant. It doesn't actually touch the promises given to us. Or whether it's in slander or praise. And he says, for them, he says, we are treated as imposters. He's speaking of the apostles. He says, and yet we're true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold, we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. That is a remarkable way to sum up the Christian life. It's not about money. It's not about status. It's not about fame. It's not about praise. It's not about vainglory. Not about any of this. From the outside, we are perceived as having nothing. But what do we actually know? We possess everything. Everything that's going to last. You say, wow, I kind of wish that Paul would speak this plainly everywhere. That would really be nice. And you can see his answer here in verse 11. We speak, we've spoken freely to you. This is a way of trying to make the case for suffering well as a Christian in plain language. In other places, it's not so plain. As Peter writes about Paul's writings, some things are very difficult to understand. But here, not so much. It's just difficult to see. Any questions or thoughts about all of that, or even clarifications if I said something that didn't hit right? When he said um, about all things working together for good, mm-hmm. I've always thought that it worked together for good because it brought us closer to God. Because what was going on, we learned through it. Sure, there is, there is that aspect to it. The, the, the common way to use that verse is not that way. That's an acceptable use of that verse. Um, the, the common way of using it is uh, the reason you shouldn't despair, Christian, is tomorrow might be better. Um, which is a real hard thing to say to somebody going to their death. You know, a uh, real hard thing to say to somebody facing their last trials. Um, you know, so... That's what I'm reacting against. It, it has multiple applications. What you express is one of them. Uh, perfectly fine application of that verse. The ultimate good is God's salvation of his people, which is not affected by this. In other words, um, let's say we come to a Christian that is, is threatened with despair uh, in their situation. We may well use that verse to say, look, this does not in any way hinder the God's good work. Not in any way, either in your life or in the world. And you may take heart. Um, not because your circumstances might get better. Or, and not because the circumstances are fine. 
Uh, and not because we're lying to ourselves about this, but because the promises of God continually out. And he will bring you there through this. Uh, not, not in spite of it. He will just bring you through it. Um, and so, yes, that is a perfectly fine application of that verse. Good. Glad I could make clarity on that. Anything else? By the way, we leapfrogged over perhaps one of the best um, expressions of the gospel in all of scripture, and I would be remiss if I didn't just back up and show you that. It's one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. It's at the end of chapter 5. Verses 20 and 21. But, I mean, really, verse 18 through the end. But verse 21 is my favorite. But back up to verse 18 to get the context. I just want you to appreciate this while you're here. Uh, One of my absolute favorites. Um, All this is from God, he says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice, again, everything is at the work of God's hands, not ours. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Not the work of it, the message of it. We are to tell it, right? Evangelism. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Notice, as ambassadors for Christ, we are citizens of a different world, of a different country, of a different promise, whatever different king. So we are ambassadors here, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is a remarkably clear statement of the transfer that takes place at salvation and on the cross. Our sin to him, his righteousness to us. And all of it is the work of God. And that is the ministry of reconciliation we are given. That is the message of the gospel. I love that passage. You should always have that one underlined in every Bible. And it should be memorized, to be perfectly honest, because it's one of the best uh, summations there. Okay. Turn to the end of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13. The last time he'll mention the Spirit of God, uh, or the very next time he mentions the Spirit, he goes seven chapters without mentioning the Spirit of God once. Uh, in the application section. It's kind of a remarkable thing. Someday I'll teach through 2 Corinthians and explain why that is. But here, he gives his final greetings to the church. And he tells them about the effect that all of this should have. We'll talk about this and then we'll end because we're coming close to 10 o'clock. It says, finally, brothers. Verse 11, sorry. Finally, brothers, rejoice. That's a very different tone than 1 Corinthians, isn't it? Very different. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. There is so much in that verse. How can we do this? How can we aim for restoration? How can we comfort one another? How can we agree with one another? How can we live in peace? How can the God of love and peace be with you all? How is that possible? By the work of our hands or the work of God's hands? 
You see, this is, this is kind of one of those remarkable things. We'll actually read it in the morning service by happenstance this morning. Romans 14 will actually address this issue. What if we disagree about stuff? You ever met a Christian that disagreed with you about something? No? Never? Sweet. Man. <laughs> it's nice. Lived a pillowy life. How is it that Christians should be able to carry on in the midst of disagreements? Do we just strong arm one another until the other caves? Happens all the time. What should we do according to Romans 14? Anyone familiar with that one? Another one you should probably have memorized for church fellowship. One of you believes he may eat anything. The other one believes he may eat only vegetables. One day is more important than another. In one Christian's mind, all days are the same. In another Christian's mind, what are we to do? You should each be fully convinced in your own mind. There's something much bigger than making everyone uniform going on. It's called humility. We must respect that we each walk with God differently. Differently. In the midst of the church. The role of the church is not to create uniform Christians. We all line up like we're a little army, all dress the same way, all look the same way, all speak the same way, all do the same things, and all have the same kind of houses, the same color cars. And yes, there are churches that enforce that. I have met them. That's not the job of the church. The job of the church is not making us like each other. The job of the church is making us like Christ. And to facilitate the message of reconciliation that God will actually do this in our midst. So how do we aim for restoration? How do we comfort one another? How do we agree with one another? We agree with one another sometimes in the midst of just simple disagreements. And it's okay. It is perfectly fine to disagree with one another and to not let that define us. And this isn't talking about what color this room should be. These things are... Who cares? With regards to the goal of the church, with regards to the ministry of reconciliation, we are to live in peace with one another. If you know anything about Christians at all, you will say there is no way that the work of our hands could accomplish that. That is absolutely correct. And so he finishes off in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see, the stuff of Christians loving one another, being gracious with one another, and living at peace is the stuff of life. Think about it for a second. In the new heavens and the new earth, do you think we're going to argue over pittances? Or what we should do? Or how we should carry about our lives? No. Because the stuff of that is the stuff of death. And while it plagues our minds constantly, and we have disagreements even in our own homes, in our own marriages, in our own families, the same thing will show up in the church. The reality is, in the church we have something far grander than even what we have in our own homes. It is distinctly the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that brings life now. Which means, while it is exceptional in this life, it should not be exceptional that the church actually lives at peace with one another. It should be the norm. It is a remarkable testament to the fact that 
not all of the ends of the, uh, the salutations at the ends of the epistles include a full-on Trinitarian formula to carry something out, but here we have one, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It is going to take the entirety of the Trinity to pull this off. Not because God is not capable, but because every single member of the Trinity has a role in carrying out the life of the saints. But the Holy Spirit has a very specific and unique one. It's one of the reasons why I'm teaching this class, and I've taught it before. Um, but the reason I teach this class is we tend to make the Holy Spirit about us. The Holy Spirit told me this, the Holy Spirit gave me this dream, and we ruin the whole point why the Spirit is given to the church at the beginning. It is not so that you get special little revelations and you can lord them over people. In fact, that's the exact opposite of what the Spirit of God is doing. The Spirit of God is not coming into your life and giving you special revelations and special dreams. If he is, you hold them up to Scripture. And let me quote John Owen, a great Puritan theologian of the 1600s, who said, if your dream agrees with Scripture, it is unnecessary. If it disagrees with Scripture, it is wrong. <laughs> it's a fascinating way to put that. The Spirit of God comes into... <laughs> the Puritans were not known for uh, mincing their words. Um, when, when it comes to the Spirit of God, his focus is not that you get to have lots of money and health and happiness and everything gets to work out. No, the Holy Spirit's goal is that the church in fellowship focuses on Christ. That is the stuff of life. He is, at the very essence, the life giver. You listen to the Nicene Creed, it's actually the only thing really stated about him. The giver of life. Who is that life? Christ. That's his focus. Every which way. He is the giver of Christ. He is the giver of life itself. And all of this stuff, the actual fellowship of the saints is the stuff of life. And so it is the work of the Spirit of God. And so when we see things like the fruit of the Spirit, we are looking at what life truly is. You want to know what life in the new heavens and new earth looks like? Read the fruit of the Spirit. Every single person will have every one of those at every moment. Can you imagine? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. With a full focus on Christ, his glory, and thanksgiving, day in and day out. People look at heaven and go, well, what will we be doing? Some people go, oh, it's a never-ending worship service. <laughs> with with uh, the most long-winded sermons of all time. No, no. It's life. All the stuff that makes up life in the presence of God. Creativity, in the absence of sin. Creativity, discovery, fascination, camaraderie, building. Look at Isaiah 65. He talks all about planting orchards. and things. He's talking about the new heavens and new earth. Planting trees, enjoying the creation of God, enjoying God, enjoying one another. And ruling angels. That one's hard to fit in somehow. But to focus on all of this and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to create our best life now. To steal a title of a common book these days that teaches heresy. 
We are not focused on making our best life now. We are focused on enduring this life as we ought for the life to come. It doesn't mean that we forsake our responsibilities here. No, actually far from it. It gives us a real reason to carry out our responsibilities here. A real reason. Because what we do then for heaven's sake does not pass away, but carries on into eternity because it's the stuff of life. We're going to talk a lot more about this in the morning service this morning because literally the name of the sermon this morning is I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus expressing things to Martha before raising Lazarus from the... Oh, sorry, I gave away the ending. (laughs) Yeah, spoiler alert, right? But Lazarus makes it out again. Um, So uh, we're going to extend a lot of this. So take this with you and we're going to go in there um, a little bit later on. But let's pray as we end here. Uh, Our Father, we're grateful that you continually work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. The Father, even our uh, the good works that you have ordained before the foundation of the world are not dependent on the work of our hands. They are dependent on you. And we pray, Father, that uh, we always give you the glory that is due, that we do not seek to take it from you or to claim it as our own, but, Father, that we become thankful as the days go on. Thankful that despite our constant dust-like actions, the treasure that is inescapably glorious is hidden within us. And it is not some secret thing. It is something that is a ministry proclaimed from the highest of the hills. We thank you for it. And we pray that we get to enjoy part of its fellowship here even this morning. In your son's name. Amen. Mm-hmm. Everywhere you see it in the, everywhere I remember seeing it in the scripture is Father, Son, Spirit. This is the only time it jumped out at me. Son, Father, Spirit. Spirit. Yep. So if I ever teach through Second Corinthians, I'll tell you why that is. <laughs> it's a much longer explanation, but yeah. Yep, it's pretty cool. 